Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Okay, go ahead. You now you're me, on. man. I did. There we go. We were playing around with the mute button together. I think so. You were unmuting me, unmuting me, and I was muting me. All right. Well, good evening. It is Wednesday, March twenty third, two thousand and twenty two. You're looking very sharp tonight, Mister Real. I'm trying. You know, little jacket over top of a shirt. You're the one who kind of uh, did this first, and I'm like, yeah, you know what? I think I can get away with wearing a shirt under a t-shirt under a jacket. It looks good. It does so look good. You it looks rock like it, and sometimes, and uh, I went ahead with it. I like to think I'm a good influence on you. You're a very good positive influence on me. There's writing on your shirt. What does it say? Uh, it's a quote from Buddha. You need to let that shit go. Oh wow! Translated from the original language, I guess. Yeah, from Sanskrit. Okay, perfect, perfect. <laughs> By the way, uh, I'm going to be speaking. Like anybody wants to hear me speak some more, but. On uh, Saturday, April 2nd, that's uh, 2022, uh, Florida, Orlando, Thrive. I think it'll be about 1.30 their time. And I will be appearing by special dispensation through Zoom or whatever kind of um, hookup they have. Nice. That'll be a lot of fun. What do you have coming up, Mr. Real? What do I have coming up? There is a party on... Uh... Friday, so in two days, at my home for the post-Mormons in Southern Utah. You know, there are times when I wish I lived closer to you or had unlimited we, miles. We'd have a lot of fun, RFM. Oh, my gosh. Maybe too much fun. Police would I mean, probably be called. I mean, the fun's going to be happening whether you're here or not, but, uh, you know. Yeah, the problem is that if both of us get arrested, I have difficulty bailing you out. <laughs> That's true. I will need a legal defense. <laughs> okay. Well, we have got a great, great show tonight. The title of tonight's show is Out of Africa. And I'm happy to announce that we actually have Robert Redford and Meryl Streep in the studio. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> oh, there's Meryl. No, no, this is much better than Meryl Streep and Robert Redford. This is Susie Benson. Hi, Susie. Hi, everyone. And we also have a, a gentleman here who is going to go by a name. Now, I have no respect for people who don't use their real names to just hide behind <laughs> some kind of a made-up thing. But this is going to be, this is Black Exmo. Hello, everyone. Black How Exmo, Black how are you doing tonight? Pretty good, pretty good. How is everybody? Well, I'm fine, thank you. And I'm just trying to be very careful of my words because I actually know you. Yes. I know yes. a lot about you, including your name, and we're not going to go there tonight because of personal reasons that you are not quite prepared to want your name or any kind of identifying information mentioned about you. And we'll let you talk about that when we get to your segment. But mainly what we're going to do tonight, we've got two guests. Both of them have connections to Africa in actually very different ways. 
And it ended up being that uh, I think either one of these guests could probably fill the whole program. We may be going a little bit long tonight, but to try and give equal time, we're going to talk to Susie for approximately 40 minutes. And then we're going to talk to Black Exmo uh, for 40 minutes. And then we'll have phone calls like we always do at the end of the program. Does that sound okay to everybody? Absolutely. Sounds great. All right. And everybody's going to be on the screen for the whole thing so everybody can comment as uh, things progress. Now, Susie Benson. Susie, are you okay with talking about where you live? Yeah, absolutely. Where do you live? Uh, I live in uh, Kirkland, Washington, which is uh, just down the way from some other amazing Exmos in this area that I'm not sure I'm allowed to talk about. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I, I was thinking about like, uh, yeah, I don't know that I want to name other Exmos. That's um, fine. You don't need to. Yeah. You don't need to, but that's where you are. And I understand that you are a certified professional coach. That's and is true. that a, what kind of coach is that? So I do leadership development and um, I help individuals maximize their potential. Cool. I need a lot of that, believe me. And you, you trained with Brene Brown. Yes, I was lucky enough. Uh, you can see on the that side of the screen, that little picture up there is me and my, uh, I guess she's my hero, is Brene Brown. So I was lucky enough to train with her. And I deliver her, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Dare to Lead. It's a, a best national bestseller. I deliver her um, curriculum in organizations and uh, use that in my coaching to help people um, learn to be more vulnerable and get rid of shame. Wow. There's a lot of shame in this world. Absolutely. And about three times as much in the LDS church. (laughs) Four times. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, We got a big competition going. It's it's kind of a friendly competition between the Mormons and the Jews. (laughs) But... I'm sorry. I just say that because of my Jewish friends. Anyway, so we're trying to see who can do the most guilt is the deal. Now, that could be its own show about Brene Brown and about your coaching. But we want to talk about your connections with Africa that you had found in an organization called African Promise Foundation. And ultimately, uh, you went and I believe you, you sold that to somebody else. Is that correct? Yeah, I actually didn't sell it because it's a nonprofit, which uh, in legalese terms, you don't you can't sell a nonprofit. So I handed it off to a young uh, a young woman who actually traveled on a trip with me and she had a dream of having a nonprofit. And I said, hey, here you go. You can be the director. Fantastic. But then you founded your a new uh, organization called African Promise Expeditions. I did. Yes. African Promise Expeditions is an offshoot of the foundation. And uh, during my faith transition, um, sadly and happily, I went through a divorce. And as every good Mormon you know, woman, I, I was a stay-at-home mom. And so my foundation, uh, I didn't make enough money from that to sustain myself. So when I went through the, the divorce, I said, well, how can I sustain myself? And I was leading people on these uh, transformational journeys to Africa. And I said, well, what's wrong with being paid for what I'm doing? And I started this organization that leads people on personal development journeys to Uganda um, with the idea that we connect to the community, immerse ourselves in a village, and we, the, the visitors, transform. It's a lot less about trying to change Africans. That's not my motto at all. So 
Um, I've been lucky to partner with some incredible people like Noah Rochetta. Some people know him from secular Buddhism, and we've we've led a few expeditions with what turned out to be a lot of expos, um, and and then a few surprise people who were like, "Hey, I thought I was coming on a trip to learn about secular Buddhism, and now all of you Mormons, ex-Mormons, are sitting and talking." Um, so yeah, we've we've had some really great experiences in transforming lives, both in Africa and you know within, I would say, mostly the U.S. Before I get to your story related to Africa, how can anybody who is interested in what you do find out more about you? Um, well, I have two websites. Uh, maybe Maven can pop in the chat. Um, AfricanPromiseExp.com is African Promise Expeditions. And I, I actually lead, uh, sometimes partner. Um, some of you may have heard of the, this awesome woman named Dr. Julie Hanks. She is a very progressive Mormon who's helping a lot of people. And she and I um, had teamed up to bring a group uh, this summer and it, it kind of fell apart because of COVID. But that's on the agenda for the future personal development journey with uh, Dr. Julie Hanks, who's still in and I'm out. Um, and then as far as coaching, if, if you know someone needs help with transitions or leadership, it's SusieBensonCoaching.com. And that's Susie with a Z and a Y, correct? That's right. S-U-Z-Y, Benson, B-E-N-S-O-N. Yeah, I think some of you know that name, Benson. Yes. Well, <laughs> are, is there a relation? Actually, no, but there is to Faust. Oh, so. okay. Last name Benson, but the relationship is to Faust. Yeah, isn't that interesting? But there's no nepotism in the church. <laughs> so you're related in some way to uh, former President James B. Faust? James, James E. e. It's yeah. been too long. I yeah. lost it. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, I love I love those websites. Thanks. How was it that you came to be attracted to being involved in Africa? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, one of the things that I can thank for uh, thank Mormonism for is they instilled a belief in me. Um, to make the world a better place. And I, I've always been service oriented. Part of that is probably my nature. Um, and then part of that is, you know, the church really taught me to, to do something, right? We're a church of works. So um, I volunteered when I was living in Chicago with uh, a group of Somali refugees. And when refugees come to the US, you know, the US each year picks a certain amount of at-risk people groups and they give them visas you know, and then eventually they, they become citizens. Um, I started volunteering with um, a, a family who arrived straight off the plane from a refugee camp in, in Kenya called Kakuma. And my heart was just so open. These people literally got off the plane. Many of them had malaria. One of the young boys, his name was Shukri. Um, we taught him how to write his name and he took a Sharpie and because my, my friend was hosting them in her home, he eventually started writing Shukri in Sharpie on her furniture and we had to put a stop to that. Um, so I, I listened to their stories, my heart was touched and I started to dive a little bit deeper into Africa. I was, I was pretty you know naive and uh, even though my parents raised me to be a citizen of the world and I traveled the globe, Africa was not on my radar. And I, I discovered that in Uganda, there had been a, a war. It had been going on for 20 years. And over 20 years, uh, 40 to 
40 to 60,000 children had been kidnapped and turned into child soldiers and sex slaves. And I was appalled. I was like, how do I live in this world? And I didn't know this. And at the time, Elizabeth Smart, we all know her story. She was front and center. She'd been missing. And I thought to myself, if Elizabeth Smart gets all of this press and we have 40 to 60,000 children who have been kidnapped, why are we not talking about them? And so I, I kind of joke now, like in typical white savior fashion, which I'm embarrassed and I can admit now, I was like, what can I do? And um, yeah, I, I, I was not sure if someone was chiming in. So, um, so I decided that when the war ended, it became a 21 year long war. Uh, it actually didn't completely end. It just moved into another country, but it got very small. Joseph Coney and the warlords moved on. Um, I was like, I want to go to Uganda and I want to see if there's something that I can do. And so I literally hopped on a plane, not knowing much. My dad had a contact in Uganda with a soccer program. We went over to Uganda with the intention of, you know, uh, exploring and seeing if there was something, some way that we could help. And what transpired in that experience was the gentleman who was hosting us ran uh, a soccer program for, at, can you guys still hear me? Something just changed in my. I can hear you fine. Perfect. Great. Something switched in my ears. Um, this gentleman who hosted us ran a soccer program for kids, you know, in, in war-torn Uganda. And he said, my dream is for you to bring back an American girls soccer team and um, teach girls both soccer uh, like goals on the pitch and goals in life. And so Maven might have a picture of the soccer team. I partnered with an incredible woman named Jackie Skinner from, uh, she was from Provo. And we took Tip View High School girls soccer team to Uganda for, we were the first American girls soccer team. I don't think there's ever been one since. And we ran soccer tournaments with a lot of these kids who'd, who'd you know, been child soldiers and, and were refugees. And, um, from Are you able to see the picture on the screen now, Susie? Yeah. Yep. Yep. So there's there's some incredible girls in there. I actually took a, a Kimmy. Oh, there was a famous Provo politician, his daughter. I wish I could remember. Um, Bramble. If anybody knows the politician Bramble from Provo, Utah. Her, his daughter came on that trip and some really incredible young women. Um, so while we were there, on that trip, we visited an internally displaced people's camp and an IDP camp is different than a refugee camp because it's a camp within your country. So the government, in order to protect them from the warlords, um, gave people 24 hours to move into these camps. And it actually was a big debacle because it didn't protect them. It actually like made them easier targets for Coney and his, his warlords. Um, Kurt Bramble, thank you, Mike. Yeah. And I took him, his wife and daughter. So we were, we were in one of these IDP camps walking through, um, you know, kind of just learning and Maven can pop up a picture of tiger. So this is a picture of tiger and, oh, it actually makes me cry. <laughs> like I'm a total crier, FYI. Um, so tiger literally de descended upon our group, like in a very, you know, bold way. And you can see the passion on his face. And he said, why have you forgotten our people? Our people have suffered a lot. And he said, please go back and tell the people of our suffering. And he actually said, go and tell Obama, 
which made me laugh, right? I chuckled at the time. Um, but that's the moment where I saw Tiger and I looked at him in the eyes and I said, I promise I will go back and I will tell the people. Cue the tears. And that's where African Promise Foundation was born. It was out of a promise to this old man. And a year later, I went back with my board of directors because, of course, I went back home and I told the story and I rallied the, the troops and I brought back my board because they needed to make their own promise. And while we're driving out in the middle of the bush, I see this sign, KOIDP camp. And I said, oh my gosh, that's where I met the old man tiger. And I said, stop, stop, stop. And we got out, we walked around this small little, well, it was a massive IDP camp, this small little area. And, and I told this story of this old man, tiger, tiger, tiger. And eventually, an hour later, maybe, here comes Tiger on a Boda Boda motorcycle on the back. And he's wearing the same shirt. And, and I, I was like, Tiger, Tiger. And I was able to say, I kept my promise. We're back and we're going to do something. And uh, his name is actually Ojak Dick, his real name, but he was known as Tiger. So a lot of people were like, who's, you know, they didn't make the connection. Um, and so out of that promise, uh, we we started an organization where we employed um, 25 women and Maven can show the picture. These are the women of African Promise Foundation and they make recycled paper um, beads and turn it into jewelry. And the proceeds of that jewelry, we sell it in the States. Um, we used a sponsor. We used to have about 40 kids before COVID that we paid school fees for. And so this is the women receiving their Christmas chickens because we appreciate them. And every year we want to show them gratitude at Christmas. It's a hard time for them. And, um, and in fact, I will plug African Promise Foundation right now, because if any of this touches you, these women through COVID have really been suffering. And so you can donate, um, you know, even $25. And I, I would be happy to send it to them because we've done a few phone fundraisers through COVID. It's been really tough for them. So can I break in just for a second, Susie? Yeah. And I'm going to make an executive decision. I haven't talked to Bill about this. I hope it's okay. Everybody, uh, if you were going to make any live chat donations or super chat donations to us tonight, could you please instead go to African Promise Foundation and contribute anything that you would contribute here to the show tonight and just go there and make that contribution? Is that okay, Bill? That that would be great, my friend. Absolutely. Okay. And hopefully even more than you usually go ahead and um, donate here. Yeah. yeah. Open your hearts, open your wallets. It sounds like a wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, program. Thank you. Awesome. And a hundred percent of all proceeds, there's no paid staff. A hundred percent of the proceeds will go back to the women. And what my commitment is, is if there's enough money that it can go to all 25, they gather and we'll take a picture and you can share it in the future on the show. That'd be great. By the way, I can't do anything right now because I'm busy with the, the show, but I will personally make a donation here after the show's thank over. Thank you. That means a lot. Uganda has, uh, out of COVID, they were the country where uh, the kids have been out of school the longest. They just started in February. So two years of no education and uh, there's no online schooling. And our students, um, I, I actually, it's a little bit heartbreaking. I got the school fees because I still stay very involved. The list recently and what I noticed was our our students like it dwindled. We don't have 40 students anymore. And I asked our our liaison why and he said a lot of them just gave up. Mm. 
you know, two years without education and not to get on my soapbox, but where I live in Kirkland, Washington, a lot of the complaining about our kids have to eat outside and they don't, they have to wear a mask. And my heart was like, wow, how resilient your children are going to be. They're going to learn so much from this because, yes. you know, my friends in Africa didn't get to go to school. So what a privilege. And that's part of the privilege, the white privilege, the Western privilege that I see. Yeah. Well, I tell you, we've got uh, a limited amount of time and I know there's some very specific points that you want to make. Some of it having to do with uh, your initial uh, perceptions or goals when you arrived in Africa <laughs> the first time and how that changed over time into how it is that you approach your program now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, as I as I mentioned, like Mormonism gave me that drive to do good. And um, part part of, you know, my first journeys over there, I would always go to church. And um, so, you know, my my work has changed a lot because when I started, it was from an angle of I need to go and save Africans. And uh, I would go and hold babies in orphanages thinking I was doing a good thing. And to be honest, it made me feel good. Right. There's like all of us think we're altruistic, but it's, you know, to some degree we are. We get something out of it. Um, but what I've learned now and, and it ties even into missionary work is it's not our job to go and save Africans. Um, Africans are very um, and look at we've got how many countries uh, Black Expo is at 54 African countries. Um, yeah, 54 countries. Yes. Yeah, we just can't lump everybody into one country. Like it's a continent, people, and so um, we we can do a lot of harm. And even you know, I have really strong feelings about missionary work now. Whereas I used to feel so proud when I'd see the Mormon missionaries. We do a lot of good, right? We have Mormon helping hands, and I've often seen um, Mormon helping hands di distributing vaccines, etc. And we do a lot of harm. And so when I first started, what felt like pride when I'd go to church changed when I realized, like, this is not different, much different than colonialism. We came in and the colonists, you know, came in and westernized Africa and they brought religion and they brought all sorts of different things. And um, when we send missionaries in to Uganda, I'll say that in particular, I know of a situation where someone was taught the discussions and he had multiple wives. And, and, and in order to get baptized, what do you think he was asked to do? I know the answer to this question, so it's not fair for me to respond. Bill, what do you think? <laughs> I'm going to guess that he had to desert um, all, of, all of the other women except for his first wife. That's right. So yeah. in order to get baptized, he would have had to get rid of his wives. And so isn't that it? ironic? Oh, and hugely so ironic. It's bad in the first sense, but how ironic for that to be a condition to being baptized into the LDS church. By the way, yeah. I think everybody understands, and I think I do too, that plural marriage is accept an accepted practice in Uganda. A lot of places it is accepted. Yeah. So there are over 50 tribes. So, you know, it depends on kind of, you know, uh, and the main religion is Christianity with uh, Islam following second. So in some Christian areas, you know, it's not an accepted practice, but definitely in in tribes, my my son, my eventually we'll probably talk about. I have an adopted son. His uh, his father had multiple wives, so it's you know they may not all actually be legally married, but you know it's a practice of so. Um, Susie, mm -hmm. yeah. So what did this guy do? Oh gosh, that's a that's a tearjerker. So um, on that trip with the uh, with the soccer team, um, I went over to Uganda a few days early. 
with the intention, what do you think I was going to do? Angelina Jolie, uh, Madonna, what is? what do you think? Adopt an a African baby, child? Right? A baby, right? baby. Yeah, because you know, there what what had been sold to me was there are all these African children who need families, and uh, I mean I've got a lot of love in my heart. So what happened, right? My my heart was pricked every time I went to Africa. I'd see all these babies that looked like they were in poverty, and I was like, oh, I need to save a child. Now, please don't drop now because you're gonna learn. Like I don't believe that anymore, right? That's not my job. But I went over there with the intention to find an, a baby because I was like, oh, I've got a lot of people, you know, or a lot of love in my heart and I can help a person. Uh, what happened was I didn't find a baby. I connected with that 14 year old boy. So cue the tears. <laughs> that is uh, that's me after I met him. You can see I have a rosary around my neck, that necklace. He gave that to me as a gift. Oh. And uh, we said goodbye to each other. And he had called me mom for days. He followed me around the village holding my hand. And I was like, of course, my heart was touched. I fell in love with him. And I thought, uh, I remember calling my ex-husband and I said, I didn't find a baby. I found a boy. And it was like mic drop, right? Like who adopts, who brings a young man into their family? You've got younger children. There's all sorts of horror stories about sexual abuse, right? And uh, um so I, I went back after that trip and we we decided to start selling that paper jewelry. That's before I had the inception of that. How can I help people? I started just selling it to friends to pay his school fees and uh, not knowing that that would be the birth of, you know, how can I help you know people sustain their uh, feed, feed them income, et cetera. And uh, eventually my ex-husband, I remember it was on Mother's Day. He's, he gave me that gift. He said, we can adopt him. So we did and we brought him back to the States and you can maybe maybe show a couple of pictures of uh, him. He, the two of us now, that's, that's my son. I won't say his name for privacy. How old is um, he there? He's probably, let's see. That was probably, that one was probably two years ago, right? When the, we're looking at, and before that was probably right after his mission. Um, so he, you know, came into our family and we said, you don't have to become LDS. Like, we're not going to force you to do that. And he said, mom, I always do his accent, mom, I want to be a part of the family. So he went to church and he got baptized. And a couple of years later, he got called on a mission back to Africa. And he was ticked. He was pissed off. Because he was like, I've lived my whole life in poverty, and now I get sent back to poverty. <laughs> and I and I thought, man, the church missed a golden opportunity to put a black face in the church and represent, you know, diversity. <laughs> he wanted to go to Texas. He said, Mom, I wanted to go to Texas. And Maven, you can show a picture of him. This is his, uh, him in Ghana. And he had a beautiful experience. And uh, he was not a... a he was the kind of a missionary where, you know, he just loved people. He, you can see he's the happiest kid. Oh, I love now that picture. Yeah. Now he's 27 right. he's, or 26. He's getting married. So imagine how he felt, though. He went on his mission into this religion that we brought him into. And during that mission is when I had my faith crisis and got divorced. So oh he my left gosh. with an intact family who believed everything. And he came home you know, after serving the Lord to, to realize his family was gone. 
you know, we, we were splitting up and we had no sign of problems before his mission. So it was pretty tough. And there's some guilt. Is your son Susie, can I ask a question? Oh, go ahead, please. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, is that is this photo from his mission? Yeah, it's in the. MTC I'm just looking at the. Oh, okay, I I thought maybe that's the photo of the Christ's uh, on his mission in Africa. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, well, is the MTC, MTC in Africa? Yeah. Yeah. So so he went to the Accra, uh, Ghana MTC. So. Literally, it is interesting. We've got a white savior standing above him. And it's, I talked about this idea of the white savior complex. And I think a lot of Mormons have the white savior complex. And can you tell us what you mean by that? I know you said that you felt that you suffered from it initially, yeah. though you've changed your mind about that Absolutely. or seen. Go ahead. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I feel extremely vulnerable talking about it because, you know, it's not a good a good title to have. Um, and the white savior complex is really this idea that um, white people come in and rescue Africans that, you know, why, why on earth would I need to go and, you know, rescue a, an African baby? I mean, that adoption costs 25,000 plus dollars. Can you imagine if I empowered, right? Like, like my son, um, my son was able to say, I want to come to the US. It's worked out beautifully. Now, um, a lot of babies in Uganda and in Africa have living family members who would take care of them. They need a hand up, they wanna be empowered, but I, I'm very against, I might get some pushback on this, on taking uh, African babies from their culture and, and cutting them off from their, like, like I'm unique because I go to Uganda all the time. My son, like we, Uganda is in our, our whole family, like it's represented in the house, but a lot of people like these, you know, in trying to do good, they remove black children from um, their culture. And it's a rich, beautiful culture that, you know, can you imagine that $25,000 where that, how that could have empowered, could have started a business for someone. And we still stay in touch with my son's birth family. His parents are deceased, but we've, we are sponsoring, you know, a brother in education. We, we have a lot of ties, but um, there's, that, you know, we could do a lot of good by empowering people and keeping kids in in their culture. I don't know for a fact, but I'm guessing that uh, U.S. dollars go further in Uganda than they do. Yeah. There. Yeah. So on average, like if anyone wants to sponsor a child on average, it's probably about fifty dollars a month. And that includes food, education um, and housing. And so, do you do that through your foundation as well? Yeah, I do. Yeah. OK, because I'll tell you. I don't know anything about these uh, charities or organizations that maybe I see ads for on TV. Yeah. Uh, one of them, I think uh, Sally Struthers was in, but that may have been a while ago. So I don't know how much of money that gets contributed there actually makes it to mm -hmm. the end of the line. Mm -hmm. In your situation, yeah. how much does? Right now, 100%. There's no paid staff. And, and I will, I will maybe shift some thinking on this. When I started my nonprofit, I felt... I felt a little self-righteous because I, until the end, I think I made $900 a month at the end because I, you know, I was giving it a 40 hour work week. I felt a lot of pride in saying hundred percent goes to the kids. And I, I still do. However, if we don't pay nonprofit workers a decent salary, we don't attract um, people who are good at their job. Like we need to incentivize. So I actually feel like, you know, look at the balance and the ratio, but 
um, I would love, you know, I'm pretty good at what I do. And if I can make a six figure salary and come in and make it, let's say a nonprofit hired me, uh, you know, I can, I can make the nonprofit better and generate more income, which helps people. But we have to, we have to pay people. We, we, in Mormonism, I think there's this, there's this like pat on the back if we do everything for free. Remember, we're all volunteers. And so I, I want to get, you know, um, out of that mentality that we don't need to pay nonprofit workers. And I will say we're very small nonprofit. And so 100 percent of it does go to the kids. Right. Well, I think the wonderful thing about what you're doing is, first off, that you were uh, you had this idea in the first place. And then you acted on it and you actually went over to Africa, which I under, it's a long trip. Yeah, and I think a, I've been 15 times now is how many times, at least 15 times. I've got to imagine it was somewhat scary the first time. You'd never been there before. You don't really know yeah. what you're doing. You don't know the language. Interesting. So, yes, because um, in Western culture, we have created this idea that Africa is about war and everyone's in poverty. And one of my missions in life is to flip the script and, and show Africans as empowered, intelligent people um, who know how to solve their problems. And I'm totally against using, and you may even still find it like poverty porn is what I call it somewhere with my name attached to it. And I apologize if there's stuff still on the internet, but using pictures of children who look impoverished to elicit donations, change hearts. Like I really... I started out that way. I used a lot of sad photos and told a lot of sad stories. And what I want to actually flip the script on is resilience and um, and even bringing it back to church members, right? Like the church members I've met over there, the resiliency and the dedication to the church. Um, I'll tell you a good white savior story. It's a bad one. Um, someone, in my, someone in my family, I won't name names but I'm not attached to them anymore. If you get the drift, um, went to Uganda, <laughs> <laughs> went to Uganda. Um, my son actually did his Eagle project in Uganda. He dug, raised the money and dug a well in a village, which was really cool. And he, um, he and his dad went over there once to do some work for the foundation. Now I've actually given it away. Um, and they went to church in Gulu, Uganda. And, uh, there was a young man who was about to get the priesthood that day. And this young man had on a dirty brown T-shirt and this this white person, I'll say this white man, um, out of the goodness of his heart, thinking it was a good thing, offered to exchange shirts with the young man who was getting the priesthood. So we have these. This is white savior at, at its finest. Take a picture of the young man and the, the black man in the brown shirt and the white man in the clean white, you know, priesthood shirt. And then an after picture, they switched shirts. The white man gave. So so could that be a good thing? And yeah, sure. But the idea that we took pictures of it, and we shared it on social media, that's where the white savior comes in. OK, yeah. and even even the thought of changing shirts. So, you know, this person could feel more white because that's how the general authorities dress. Right. right. That kind of makes me sick to my stomach, like, let's meet you where you're at and you're wearing a brown t-shirt and who cares? We're so happy you're here. It's not really the mentality. Like there's a lot of like, look the part where if you're not wearing your white shirt, you know, to church, you're less than. So that, that right there demonstrates white savior complex. Yeah. And bless, yeah. bless his heart. He didn't know better. I bought into it at the time too. And I now, I, when people travel with me, um, there's a picture, Maven, of me hugging someone. 
So I tell people now, if you go on a trip with me, you don't post pictures of anyone unless you have a relationship with them. And if they're a child, you've asked permission by their parent. So this one makes me cry too. I miss it. I haven't been in two years, but you know, we, you can see my butt and my back. We, we've been in the mud building a, a classroom and uh, that's the headmaster. And you can see the white and the black folks like the Africans and the Americans. It's just so full of joy. It's about relationship. It's not about, we came here to solve your problems. Got it. By the way, before we switch over to Black Exmo, yeah. there was a certain, I want you to speak to anything you want in the time remaining, but I know there was a certain painting. Yeah, sure. Yeah, Maven can share that. Um, I don't know how many of you who are watching have seen this painting. Um, it's by the famous church artist, uh, Liz Lemon Swindle. And um, I this painting was commissioned by a charity or, or I, I guess Liz Lemon Swindle agreed to paint this painting for a charity based in Utah. I won't say their name because I respect them. They work in Zambia and um, it was sold to raise money to help this, uh, this organization. And I was at the founder's home one day because she, she actually was instrumental in helping me get my foundation off the ground. I reached out to her and said, hey, give me some tips. Would you be willing? And I'm standing in her family room one day and all of a sudden like this hot man comes into her family room and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's Jesus from the painting. And it, at the time, I don't know if it is still her partner, but that person was her partner. And I was, she explained that that, you know, he had gone to Zambia to pose for that picture. And that, you know, I, I think I actually saw the real picture and it turned into a painting and then Liz Lemon Swindle turned it in. But for me, what this painting now represents, I used to have it in my home. And I, I feel sad to say this because I used to have it in my home. But for me, that is blue eyed Jesus. Right. This is not representative. Yeah. Not rep and all of her paintings paint hot Jesus. He's so hot. Uh, yeah, his blue not... robe really makes his blue eyes pop. <laughs> yeah. And it's so representative of this idea that Jesus was white. And to me, I know like part of me feels like worried saying this because I know where the intent was and I know the heart of the people around it. And at the same time, it's so representative of me, literally the white savior coming to rescue the Africans. And it, it, it actually hurts and, you know, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't bode well with me. I think this is one of the pictures, if I'm remembering correctly, it was in the last few months where the church issued an announcement specifically authorizing certain pictures or paintings to be put up mm -hmm. in ward buildings. And this was among them. Really? Uh, do you remember that, Bill? Yeah, I remember them approving certain paintings to be used differently than what's been used in the past, but I don't remember what they were. I this was, was one of them. I was going to add really quickly, uh, my wife and I got married in the Washington, D.C. Temple in 1997. At the same time in the Washington Temple Visitor Center, Liz Lemon Swindle was there. At the time, I thought it was the coolest honeymoon ever. Like, I go get sealed to my wife in the temple, and we walk across the street to the, or walk next door to the visitor center, and we listen to Liz put on a really cool presentation. Mm. And she spoke at length about the guy that she had be the model for Jesus and all of these yeah. paintings. So I could connect with that story. Yeah. I, I mean, again, I just was like, hot Jesus is in the room. <laughs> you know, I was like, damn, can I say that? Damn, you're lucky. I know, but I understand he's celibate. 
Oh, this guy probably wasn't. But well, I mean, it's Jesus, not according right? to early yeah. Mormon doctrine. <laughs> no, I know he's got Mary and Martha on the side. He's yeah. a polygamist, right? Yeah. I understand. Yeah. But um, I know uh, we're running short on time, but I we've got a little bit left here. Uh, Susie, there was something you'd mentioned to me about a white person going over to Africa, holding one of these orphans uh, mm -hmm. willy nilly. And yeah, it being yeah, a natural yeah. response that a person has, yeah. but you um, came to understand that that might not be so beneficial for the yeah. children. I love that you're saying this because we could talk about 500 things. Like I've got Nelson in Africa up above my other on my other screen, and like, oh, go ahead and say that. Well, say about Nelson, President I'll say Nelson, that please. Quickly, but then I love the other piece because you're okay. doing you're making a difference today because you're educating people who may not know better, and when we know better, we have a responsibility to do better. So President Nelson, I don't know if it was a year or two ago, popped into Kenya for a great big regional meeting and I've got it pulled up. Um, but basically it was like, you poor Africans, like the, the solution to poverty is to pay your tithing. And um, so that same poverty continues from one generation to another, quote, until people pay their tithing. And so it hurts my heart like deeply because I have been in the bush of Africa. I have been in places that most people will never go. And it hurts my heart deeply to think that someone might choose to pay tithing over school fees for their child, over um, something that's nutritious, over clothing. I have met with child soldiers who are missing limbs and breasts and ears and you know, lips have been cut off. And, you know, people like that who are the most disadvantaged people I've ever met um, and to have them be manipulated into pain, tithing hurts my heart. Something you said about that scenario resonated with me because uh, can you just share with the audience about how many people were there and how they got there? For some reason that impacted me. It's not, I don't know, I just think you know, you get in your car and you drive to the stake center or whatever, right? Yeah. Different yeah. there. Yeah. And what do you mean by there? I'm, I'm in I'm Africa to come to hear the prophet. Oh, right. To, to the regional conference. Yes. yes. Uh, well, when I was reading this article earlier, for instance, I saw something about a leader from Jinja. Jinja is Uganda. That's, that's where I've been to Jinja lots of times. So to get to Jinja to Kenya would have been uh, a plane ticket or an arduous I don't know, maybe 14 hour journey. And so I know that lots of people um, have, you know, they saved their money, they might have sacrificed school fees, etc, to get to this conference. And then the second piece is, do you know how many Ugandan LDS folks that I've met who've, like, used their life savings to get to South Africa to go to the temple? So, you know, they, they may sacrifice the opportunities. And last but not least, how many times have I had African, Ugandan, Mormons come to me for food, meaning, Susie, please, I'm starving. And I say, well, have you asked the church? And they've been turned away. They've been turned away and told, you know, go ask your family. Well, in this case, this boy was a, a, an orphan. No help. So it, it does kind of make me sick when I go into the buildings, especially the temples, and I see the amount of money spent when I know that, that that money could actually solve poverty in a country that I love, could solve it. 
All right, go ahead and, and tell us about the holding of the, the orphans. Yeah, okay. So in in my olden days, right, I have a really tender heart, obviously. <laughs> you saw my tears. And um, I thought I was doing a good job by volunteering when I go into Uganda to hold babies. And what I noticed and through learning from experts on child development is that I'm actually doing harm. Imagine I go in and hold a baby. Most of us picked our favorites. We bond with one or two children. And over one day to three weeks, who knows, two months, we bond. And then what do we do? We turn around and leave them. And that messes up a child's development because they don't form attachment um, in the proper way. So a good orphanage, not that there are any, but there are orphanages that are doing you know, the best they can and doing good, they will set these children up in little families, meaning they'll hire maybe a mama, maybe she even lives there with her own children. And they, um, they create a family unit. And so my goal is if I ever go to an orphanage, which, you know, I, I don't do anymore. Um, well, actually, I kind of do, but I stay hands off. And I say, I want to empower the Ugandans to, you know, the mamas to wash, like I might go in and wash clothes or paint, but I'm going to be hands off. I'm not even going to interact with the children. Some of the orphanages that I've been in, um, when they see a white person, they associate it with toys, candy, people handing out Jolly Ranchers. And I went to one orphanage where they literally clawed at you, the children, they were like animals to, to get to you because they wanted to be loved and hugged and they wanted toys and treats. So I, I'm like, I'm not playing into that. I, if I go to this one place, St. Jude, which is where we pay a lot of our school fees for this particular place, I stay out and I go in the background. Or if I have relationships with some of the older children, I go back year after year and I, I connect with them. So, you know, I, I just really like if, if anybody walked away with something like, hey, it's a good thing to go to a developing country and hold babies, do your research. It's not. Do something that empowers people. Don't take the power away by going in and, and robbing, you know, making it easy for people to not do their jobs. They want to, they want to have pride. So uh, were they turned away from an African bishop? It was an African bishop. It was in Kampala, Uganda. Yeah. Okay. Well, I so. think that uh, that sentiment you just expressed about, oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say that that was a great uh uh, ending point to transition over to Black Exmo, except for one thing. Can you just briefly tell the story you shared with me earlier today? I think it was about the um, the African missionary that you met. Returning yeah, I'll, from try, I'll try to make it quick. So there's a picture, um, Maven, of me and Alex that you can post. So um, my second trip to Uganda, I was on an airplane. You know, I laid over in Nairobi. And lo and behold, I'm looking and I see this missionary in this white shirt. That's this young man right here. And we sat from Nairobi to Kampala on the plane and we talked and we bonded and um, kind of fell in love with this kid. I really did. He's he calls me mom. He's my son. And when we get to the airport, uh, I'm waiting for my ride and my ride's not there. And, you know, I think it's my second, third time to Uganda. I can't remember. So I was still pretty new and he wouldn't leave me. And I I was like. Eventually, I was like, Alex, like, you just got home from a two-year mission. You've got to go home and see your family. And he looked at me, can't say this without crying, and he said, Sister Susie, I have no family. God sent you today to be my mom because I, <laughs> I can't do this without crying. He said, because I had no mother to greet me after my mission. 
And uh, Alex became our first sponsored student. The, that girls soccer team met me a few days later. We all went to church because they were all Mormons. It was Timview High School. They met Alex. Those young women from high school came up with the funds to put him into driving school. And that was his first job. He became a driver. And now he's gone to university. And this Alex to this day continues to send, like take in orphans. And uh, one woman is sponsoring that little boy right now. I wish I had a picture of him. I'll see if I can find it. Um, but Alex is like, uh, he's my son and he's still in the church and he's the one. Do you see how thin he is? This is during a time that he was literally starving and he never asked me for anything except that one time. And he asked me if I would send money for food and he was turned away by the church when he was starving. Yeah. And you could just see that smile. How can you not? I mean, do you just feel <laughs> like love when you look at this person? Yeah, that's a hundred megawatt smile. Yeah. And my son has the same smile. There, there's these two boys have like captured my heart. Men. To, now they're men. Just to jump in for a second, I did an interview years ago with uh I think it was um uh, Robert, what's his last name? Uh with the Leahona Foundation. Mm. Um Oh, I can't remember, but I did an interview with him and he talked about how the church welfare system in the U.S., how it works. And essentially I served as a bishop. If anybody came to me and had any need, mortgage, car payment, anything, you know, we could just write him a check and, and we could do it for months and months on end. And in some instances, years on end. And they would try to get us to work towards getting those situations cleared up, but they didn't make it too difficult to keep those going endlessly, essentially. Uh, he would share that in these other countries, you know, namely Africa and other places, that the system doesn't work that way. At best, some of these local leaders can feed a family for a month or something, but then they immediately have to come off the system um, and, and then they're back on their own again. And uh, it just seems so strange in a church that has this much wealth that we don't have a better system in place to take care of the members of you know, the church, regardless of, of where that member's at. And unfortunately mm -hmm. it, it, it seems as though there are certain privileged places to be a Mormon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I see it all the time. And one last thing, if we can change everyone's language, I am tired of calling poor countries, third world countries. They're developing countries. It's a much more yeah, respectful way. Yeah. Like no, none of us knew that. I didn't know that until I started development work. But let's give Uganda and Africa the respect. They are a developing country. They are not third. They aren't. Yeah. Thank you for speaking up. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. All right. So let's uh, switch over to Black Exmo. Are you still there, my friend? Yes, indeed, I am. Thank you, Susie. This was excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Black Exmo, um, can you tell us your story? Because I understand that you come from Africa originally. Originally from Africa, yes. <clears throat> I did up through high school there. I wouldn't name the country. <laughs> um, by the way, I, I ask your indulgences. Uh, there's just I'm just not quite ready to uh, unmask yet. So dealing with friends and family stuff. But ultimately, I think it will happen. Um, so I grew up Catholic. I, you know, in retrospect, I look back at it now and I, and I think I'm one of those where the church had me at hello. I actually went looking for the church. Um, uh, 
I, I grew up in a different faith. Uh, and I think sometimes Mormons uh, think that the sadness that they feel when a member of the family leaves a faith is unique to Mormonism. It, 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 it isn't. Um, other faiths do suffer that. I have uh, family members and, and the family has been entrenched in that faith for a very long time. And so when I decided to step away, it was heartbreaking uh, for my family. But yeah, so I, I searched for the church. I sat down and took the discussions over a couple of days. Days? Family, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, my family. And, and I'll circle back and just tell you why that was uh, so compelling for me at that time. Uh, my family was generous enough to sort of let me, uh, after high school, kind of um, find my path in life, including a faith. And I, I watched my, you know, my, my parents try to establish and instill a faith in, in the family. And so when I stepped away, it was heartbreaking for them. Um, so, I, you know, in, in the family, even though in, in that particular faith, it wasn't normal. Um, I can tell you uh, that my father would give us father's blessings. I don't know where he got this idea. Uh, if we were ill or some uh, anxious moment, uh, he would he was put his hands on our head and give us you, you all know what this means, right? Uh, give us father's blessing. There was fasting in the home. There was uh, service to others, encouraged within the family. So I grew up just sort of learning all about this stuff. Uh, until I came up in the church and I thought, you know, this sounds familiar. This resonates. Uh, there was a scripture study in the home. Uh, and I love the, my favorite is the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. And I saw all of that and I thought, this resonates. This sounds like something that I want to be a part of. And hence my uh, <laughs> two-day discussion and uh, enthusiasm and excitement. And that's why I think if you saw that movie, I think Jerry Maguire, where she says, you had me at hello, the church had me at hello. And that's how I came into the church. Uh, Are you okay yeah. with saying what year this would have been? Uh, this was, um, I think that might give it away. <laughs> that might give it away. It was, it was definitely, uh, it was, uh, it was definitely in the eighties. Okay. That's, that's good enough. So what happened from there? Uh, so shortly after that, I, I left home. I had always uh, intended to study somewhere else. And so I left home and having joined the church there, uh, and you know, did get baptized there, uh, and I, I um, applied to uh, come and go to school in a church school in Utah. I wouldn't name which school it was. And so I came out there and started college. Um, and I kept hearing all of this stuff, you know, you, you got to go on a mission. Everybody goes on a mission. Every young man has to go on a mission. So I thought, okay. And I happened to be dating a, a lovely uh, girl at the time. And obviously, as you know, the story to qualify and to all, everybody wants you to serve a mission. So I thought, okay, you know, if I'm, if I'm truly committed to this, then I should do what everybody else does. So I, I sent in my paperwork and I was called on a mission and I got to serve on a mission. And that is where it started for me. Um, and that mission was in the United States, correct? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. So two months into the mission field, I had just arrived into the mission field, excited, enthused, and wanted to share the gospel. Um, we, you know, this was an area that uh, very cosmo uh, cosmopolitan and a lot of, we did a lot of tracting. Uh, knocked on a door and this young man uh, opened the door and we started teaching. 
And he said, you know, I like all of this, but tell me, why are you here? And I thought, what do you mean? Uh, you know, missionaries come out. I'm here, I'm a missionary, and we're here to share the gospel with you. It's like, no, no, no. Why are you here? Did you know that your church prior to recently did not allow black folks into your church? And my shoulders just drop. Everything, my countenance, everything is just like, how could this be? How could this be? How is it that I didn't know about this? And so that was my very first encounter with this issue. Um, I, after we had uh, finished knocking on doors that day, I came home, I called the assistants, the presidents, asked if I can speak with the mission presidents. They connected me and I said, could we set up a meeting? I would like to discuss this. Can you explain to me why? this was the case and i could he was an amazing person he was compassionate uh, and he just said i i don't have an answer black exmo i do not have an answer for you um if i can lift this burden i would but i don't have an answer for you um you can imagine on top of all of this, um, brand new in a, in a country, brand new in a church, coming from the other side of the tracks, if you will, with a different skin color, um, and no resources, no avenues, nobody to talk to about this issue. I have abandoned my faith that I grew up with. I've abandoned, so to speak, my family sort of looked at me now as, you know, what, what are you doing? I couldn't turn to my family to say, hey, this is a struggle for me. Can you help me explain? Can you help explain this for me? Because it doesn't make sense. Nobody. There was nobody, nowhere to go. So I struggled. I pushed it down. Um, I, I didn't did want to quit. you with your mission president? I did. I met with him several times. How did it make you feel when you found out that actually black people could join the church? They just couldn't hold the priesthood or go to the temple. Did that make it better? Uh, that didn't make it better. That did not make it better. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I think what was even worse, and, and I, you know, I, I get that in life things happen. I, I think he was sort of, I don't think that he expected that I could be um, intelligent enough to ask the deeper questions that I was asking. Uh, things happen. I gave him that. But I said, can you? So when, when I found out about this, I, I think at that time they, they still used to carry some of the um, church buildings and the mission home still had copies of um, uh, Mormon doctrine, um, journal of discourses. So I love learning. I dove into research and I'm like, I need to understand this issue. So the more I read, the more I'm finding out that this not just were uh, black people excluded, but the explanation that was given. So that was my question to him is like, can, can you explain to me how prophets, seers, and revelators, somebody, people that I have come to trust and who, are, who represent God in this life, on this earth, would hold these views? And that is where it, got, it kind of got 
uh, he just could not explain that. Um, and that's where I, I think uh, the only thing he could do is like, if I can lift this burden, if I can find a way to explain this and have you feel comfortable in the church, I would do it. But there was just no answer. He couldn't provide an answer. And so, you know, when there would be zone meetings or conferences and, and um, general authorities would visit, he would put me in, put me in touch with and not any number of them. I had conversations. And generally what it came down to is black ex-Mormon, ex-Mo, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That was the, the response, right? Uh, instead of giving me the answers, the, the intellectual answers that I was looking for, the, the explanation that would make sense. So you can see now my cognitive dissonance, the, the gap between what I thought the church was and, and what I'm discovering it is just started increasing and widening. And I pushed it down. I, I kept pushing it down and I was able to finish the two years. You finished mission. your mission. I did finish the mission. I finished them against all arts, against all of that, against being mocked and laughed at by young missionaries from the South who've never seen a, <laughs> a black missionary in the mission field against all of that. I, I finished the mission. Can I ask you a question before we go on from there, Black Expo? Sure. Sure. Um, you had converted in Africa. You mm -hmm. finished high school, but mm -hmm. you're an active Latter-day Saint. You, obviously, you're very interested in learning and finding out and reading. And you do that. And then you come over to the States to begin college. How much college had you done one year or more before you went on your mission? Two years. At that point, Did, two years. Okay, and you had mentioned a church school, though otherwise mm -hmm. unidentified. Were there religion courses there? Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. yeah and you were. had to take those? Yes. And you're also going to church, and you're also yes. studying and reading your scriptures? Right, all of that. How many years between your baptism and your mission? Uh, between baptism and mission, three years. Three years. So... Right. I, I understand what you're saying is that at no time during all of this study or going to class, even on a college level, had you ever heard anything about the priesthood ban on blacks and temple none. ban? None, none. Even the missionaries that I received the discussions from, I and I, you know, not having grown up in the States at that time, um, I, I don't know why intuitively I asked him a question. I asked him, tell me how do black people and white people get along in your church where you come from and they dismissed that question and i thought okay you know it's not a big deal okay maybe it's not a big deal so let it go uh you know but at no time to you to, in response to your question at no time had that issue come up in fact if there was any alluding to any angling towards that issue everybody just avoided it every known mem every member avoided it <laughs> Right. So here you are, you've done everything you've done, hurting your family by converting everything you've described. And you first hear about the priesthood and temple ban from a non-member that you tracked it out on your mission. That's right. That's right. That's wow. Right. Imagine that, that my very beloved church that I had given all of this sacrifice to did not even honor and consider me worthy to be straight up, straightforward with me to tell me about this. Let me, give me the information at least. Let me make that decision that I, well, I did not matter enough to be, to, to be given that information. Well, surely they've uh, 
amend, certainly they've mended their ways <laughs> since then. And uh, at this time, I got to imagine that over in Africa, where the church is actually increasing in membership instead of decreasing like it is pretty much everywhere else, I'm sure that the church is telling the black Africans about the priesthood ban before no. they get baptized or shortly thereafter. No, nope. You would think, right? No. I mean, if you think that it is difficult here in industrialized Western countries to get access to that information, it's even more uh, sanitized, more cleansed, more, uh, you no, they're not, they're not sharing that information with people of African descent in Africa, with Africans, just to give them informed consent to say, this is our history. You can decide whether you want to be a part of this or not. No, that is information is not given unless... And, and, you know, and I would say for most Africans who don't understand um, slavery in this country and don't understand just the dynamics, social dynamics in this country, it may not even occur to them to ask that question. But you would think that in the, in, for transparency's sake that you would volunteer, the church would volunteer that information. But no, it is not discussed. Well, those, young, those young uh, African missionaries serving don't even know that. They don't know that. That, well, that seems strange in light of Elder Ballard saying, just trust us wherever you are <laughs> in the world. And you share this message with anyone else that raises the question about the church not being transparent. We're as transparent, transparent as, we know, as we know how to be. As we know, we, as we know how to be and telling the truth. Yeah. Right, right, right. Oh, my gosh. That's painful. But it's just yeah. like they're setting up all these time bombs, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I mean, yeah, that's probably about the one good thing that the church does is setting up <laughs> time bombs. Yes. Yeah. In individuals' lives so they can blow up on them. Right. right. And then the church tries to make it sound like it's not that big a deal. Right. That is, yes. Ultimately, I think I, when, when this trajectory, this journey for me has always been, it's not that big a deal. Even in the mission field, even in talking to general authorities who visited, um, even till to this day, as when I had been active talking to state presidents, bishops, I actually had a conversation with a temple president when I was attending an active, and I, and I asked him, that photo in the world, uh, on the wall of that Jesus doesn't look like where Jesus originally came from. There's always this, let it go, get over it. Get over it, basically. Get over it. Don't make this a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, you're not supposed to criticize the right. church or its products. And in fact, not only are you not supposed to criticize them, you're supposed to think that they're the best thing in the world. That's and nobody right. could do it better. Oh, yeah. 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 Now, you came up with a great expression that I will always remember, I think, when you said the priesthood ban, the priesthood and temple ban was not benign. Can you right. tell us what you mean by that? Right. So, um, yeah. So, uh, you know, if you're walking into a fast food restaurant to pick up dinner, lunch, whatever have you, uh, and, and you say, okay, well, today maybe I'll have McFish or McNugget, whatever. I don't know if those are brand names, but, you know, you can take it or leave it, right? It, it's not consequential. Um, the priesthood ban or, or, or in my, I think let's call it what it was, the doctrine of the curse was not benign in the sense that it was not harmless. It was actually traumatic and very har harmful. 
to not just um, people of African descent, but the collective population in the church. It is harmful. And, you know, I, I've shared this in, in past conversations in the sense that, for one, you give people permission, the, the majority population in the church, you give them permission to be racist, to be prejudiced. Um, and so you can see this extending not just within the confines of church, not just within the walls of the church building, but out into society. I think I read, uh, oh, I don't know, late last year where this young black kid in Utah uh, took their life. Uh, this is, this is, it's not benign. It's not benign when, and, and I do have an article here that I, that I think if, if we have time, uh, we can read in Washington, D.C., where a letter was sent to, the at that time, the state president, who was Ezra Tab Benson, about two sisters, two African-American sisters, where they, in Relief Society, where the, the majority population, whites in the church, did not want these two sisters, lovely sisters who were Black, to sit with them during a relief, in the Relief Society room. There's so many of these kinds of stories where... Uh, what does that do to your psyche when you've entrusted this faith, you've given your life, you're paying tithing, and yet you've done everything you've been required to do, and yet you're still not enough? Uh, it was not benign in the sense that, uh, according to church doctrine, which we can go through, uh, all of the statements made by the first presidency, presidency in 1949 uh, that articulating that this was a doctrine. It was not just policy. Uh, the first presidency statement in 1947, uh, in 1951, not to mention Marky Peterson's address to BYU in 1954. All of what you see in Randy Bart in, what was it? Um, 2012. 2012, yes. Brad Wilcox in 2022 and Rodney Meldrum in 2022. It was not benign. This, are, this is almost the general attitude in the church in the sense that when you walk in, you're a black person, you're immediately judged as not being, not only were you not valiant in the pre-existence, you're not valiant here, you're not smart enough. And in the case of Jen Manning James, that you get sealed as a slave after this life. How does that make, how, how should a black person feel? when you've gone through this kind of indications and, 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 and um, uh, markings that, that this is, that you don't just, you just don't belong here. You, and um, right now I'm hesitating because I don't want to give away too many details, but I think it's fair to say and okay to say that you are going through a faith transition crisis, whatever you want to call it, that is of relative recent beginning as far as shelf breaking, right? Maybe about a year ago or so. Yes. Uh, this issue has been on, uh, on my shelf since that day, uh, two months into my mission field. For more than 30 years now. That's right. Yes. It has on been on my shelf for a long time. How have you managed to continue as an active, faithful, observant member of the church that long? And what experiences have you had personally in church that have showed you that this priesthood ban, even though it was lifted in 78, is still with us and is not benign? Right. Um, yeah. So the first part of the question, uh, having how have I managed to survive this long has been um, share 
uh, tenacity. Uh, it has not been without its downside. I mean, this issue led to depression and uh, suicidal thought, thoughts uh, for me. Um, but, you know, going to school in Utah uh, as a, a black person, when you get into a relationship and the bishop discourages you because of this doctrine, it was not benign, right? Uh, when you're trying to form friendships or just walking into a classroom in a math class, in an engineering class, or you know, pre-law class, and and everybody looks at you like, are you smart enough to be here? It was not benign. So you're constantly on guard. I mean, imagine just walking through life constantly on your guard, knowing that any environment that you're going to be walking in, you'll be judged, that you're not good enough to be here. Not only were you not good enough in the pre-existence, you're not good enough here, you can't, you don't belong in this class or what have you. So, and then it spills over into relationships. So the church tells you that as a black person, you're less valued. I mean, if you read one of these statements by Brigham Young that he said, any white person that makes 60 of blood uh, with a black person and the child, all of them should have their head cut off. How is a parent? How are you going to show up with the family of your uh, that of a, a person you're dating, and they look at you and they're like, "But he's black," and you know that you know what Brigham Young said, right? So this is the kind of thing that you're having to navigate and you're having to go through. Um, I'm thinking of the second part of the question. Oh, it was your personal experiences, which you've already started to get into. And by the yeah. way, you sent me an article that came out. Um, well, I don't know how recently, but it had to do with uh, blood supply in Utah in the 40s and 50s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the, uh, a book called, um, let me see here, it is called uh, Flesh and Blood. And this is, uh, where is it? This is an article uh, by an author. She wrote a book about this, where in... Um, if you don't mind, I can I can just do a quick read. So it says in 1943, the LDS hospital opened a blood bank, one of the first in the Intermountain West and the second largest hospital blood bank, uh, modeled after John Hopkins Hospital. The long-standing Mormon teaching about white racial superiority and concerns that even one drop of Negro blood might render a man unacceptable to enter the lay priesthood prompted the hospital's blood bank like the blood banks in the American South to maintain separate blood stocks for whites and blacks. In 1978, after the uh, dec after decades of controversy, uh, controversy and the church, uh, the church announced that all worthy male members of the church may be ordained to the priesthood without regard for race or color. Shortly after this public directive, Consolidated Blood Services, which is the company uh, for the Intermountain region, announced for the first time an agreement to provide blood bank services for group of hospitals with previous LDS connections, including LDS Hospital, Primary Children's and Cottonwood Hospital in Salt Lake City, McKay D Hospital in Ogden, uh, Utah Valley Hospital in Provo. Although the maintenance of separate blood stocks for whites and blacks had reportedly been abandoned by the 1970s, reporters described how some patients who expressed concern, concern about receiving blood from black donors continued to receive reassurances that this would not happen. So there you go. So it was not benign. So this was, it affected everything from who you marry to where you go to school, how you were treated, or even how comfortable you are in church and when you go into the hospital. 
Can I say something, Black Exmo? I always pause right before I say your name. Yes, please. For some reason. <laughs> Make <laughs> no. sure I'm getting it right. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. No, as, as we've been talking over the last week, um, it has really come home to me because basically this is a problem with a group of people that's different from me, doesn't concern me. I don't have to spend a lot of time thinking about it, right? So I'm really learning more from talking to you and thinking about it more and more as I talk with you that this whole idea that the church has and that they're going through and that they're emphasizing every time somebody gets up, whether it's uh, President Oaks at the B1 celebration, mm -hmm. to make it very, very clear, we've got no blood on our skirts. This ban came from God. And we don't know why. You know, we don't know why. Uh, we used to know why, but we don't know why anymore. But the one thing we know is that it came from God. That part was clear to me. But what I never considered until speaking with you is how does that make a black person in the church feel? This isn't something where they're simply being felt like they are lesser by their other white or non-black church members that they go to church with, right? I mean, that would be bad enough. But what's being emphasized is that you are lesser in the sight of God. Right, right. And, you know, and that is the thing. Uh, there was actually a podcast that I listened to on Monday, um, this young lady just lamenting. And I think if, if you read Jen Manning Jem's story where she, that quote, uh, and it breaks my heart every time I read that, where he say, she says, is there no blessing for me? Is there no blessing for me? Is there no blessing for me? Um, I think assigning this racist doctrine to God, I think, is a cop-out. Uh, I think if the church were courageous, it would stand up and deal and face this and just say, we screwed up. Because I, I, it does not make any sense. I think this has been where my shelf was so heavy uh, that the church is telling me that this God, who is no respecter of persons, who in the Book of Mormon says, bond and free, black and white, all are alike unto God, all are invited. Who in, I think, the second article of faith says, we're not accountable for anyone else's transgression. I think that's the second article of faith, other than our own, yet violates all of those doctrines and principles and assigns blame on God that this dark skin that I had no choice in picking, I did not pick this. Uh, color of skin. Given all of the burdens, if I had to choose, would I? No. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I love it. I love, I love my skin color. But given all of the burdens that you carry in society, who would want to go through the psychological trauma of being relegated to this? As in the case of those two sisters in Washington D.C., Stick Relief Society, sitting in the back room, or. Nobody wants to sit. Nobody wants to be. Basically, what this doctrine did is give other people permission to be racist, divine permission to be racist. Right. And the directive, as I recall, because it was also in um, uh, The Rise of Modern Mormonism, David O. McKay and The Rise of Modern Mormonism by Greg Prince, that mm -hmm. story. Uh, yeah. There were two black sisters coming to church and the solution to it was, well, we'll just have them sit on the back row. That's right. 
That's right. Ask them if you read. I, I, let me see. Here. I think I highlighted a couple of places. If you read that statement, he it actually goes in um, and says, uh, "What does it say here? You know, th these people. How does it put it? Th there's there's a demarcation of them and us, uh, and, and it's just." You know, when, when you're having to deal with this and try to fit in, uh, just imagine the burden that the black members carry in the church. I, I hope the church would recognize that this is it is not easy being a black member of the church. Uh, that I don't think they give. Ahead. I don't think they give really two thoughts to you. <laughs> no, not at all. Otherwise, they would have addressed the issue way back when in the mission field when I raised it when I brought it up. Isn't it strange that we all we all have to collectively hallucinate that these men don't make serious mistakes when the serious mistakes they make are all over the place. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I like what Black Exmo says about the, the ban was, or the curse, the doctrine of the curse was not benign. And I love the way you understated, right? Yeah. But yeah. it was not benign. It was not something that we can just have it lifted in 78 and now we go on our merry way and we don't have to address it again. I want to get to that in a second. But before that, we talked on the phone and I gave you an idea uh, about going back to when you broached the subject with your mission president. And he was trying to say it wasn't that important or, you know, uh, just move along. I asked you if I were your mission president or if your mission president had instead said, look, this was a huge mistake the church made. The leaders of the church were wrong on this. We put it behind us, and I hope that you'll be able to forgive us for our mistake, which was great, and move along and know that we love you and that we're trying to do our best and that part of that trying to do our best is lifting that that ban in 78. Would that have made you feel any differently? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I think it would. I think it would have, and I mean, you know, the church in the church we teach repent. The steps towards uh, repentance is acknowledging when you wrong somebody, uh, confessing that, and and hopefully abstaining or, or refraining from from continuous harm. Uh, we all know that. We all understand that. Uh, I think that had they been, I think at that point, all I was asking for is an acknowledgement. Was just to be seen. Was just please don't dismiss, don't minimize this. Um, it's already difficult enough navigating life as a, in a black skin in, in this society, right? Please acknowledge this and just let me know that you see me, that you know what this feels like, this cross that I'm carrying, right? All I was asking for is just that acknowledgement. Had the mission president been able to just say, you know what, we messed up, this is wrong, this was wrong. Um, I don't quite know how harmful or how heavy this burden is for you, but, uh, Collectively, we will apologize. I think that would have gone a long way. That would have gone a long way. And the reason I'm asking you this question is I hope, well, first off, just so you know, there are members of the SCMC that do <laughs> monitor this program. And what I would like to do is hopefully get across to them this message so they can pass it on up yeah. that this is what would make a difference to black members and not addressing it and trying to just hope it goes away without ever dealing with it is not going to work. It hasn't worked in over 40 years. Right. Yeah. And we mentioned this too, that uh, the church uh, lifted the ban 78 
and they haven't dealt with the issue. And because they haven't dealt with the issue by apologizing for it, by acknowledging that it was wrong and all the things, it really doesn't have to be that much more complicated than that. But um, what has happened is, is that they've driven it underground because they have suppressed it by refusing yeah. to deal with it. And we learn in psychology that if we don't deal with usually negative emotions that we have by expressing them and we repress them, that they don't go away and dissolve. Instead, they move over here and then they come up to the surface in ways that are sometimes surprising. That's we right. Where did that come from? But because of that, it seems that the church in at least a number of instances since 1978 has had this pop up because the, the, the teachings have not gone away about the reasons for the ban. They're still there because they haven't really been dealt with in any meaningful way. If they had been, I don't expect that they would continue to be there in 2012. Let me see if I've got my little list here. There was 2012. There was Randy Bott. There was that whole episode. I hope right. most people know about it. It was when Mitt Romney was running for president. Randy Bott was a hugely popular religion professor at BYU and had been for a long time. And a reporter goes and talks to him and he's happy to tell him what he's been teaching his students. Thousands and thousands of students, right, over the course of his career about right. black people and the priesthood and why it was that they couldn't have the priesthood until 1978. And one of the things he did was he likened it unto... <laughs> likened it unto boy I, i'm still pretty mormon you can tell just by the way i talk but he likened it to um a father with a, a 14 year old mm. daughter or 12 year old daughter coming to ask for the car keys right. and saying well no father responsible father would give his child the car keys because they're not ready right. for them right. yet right right and of course uh that ended up being a huge kaboom on the front page of the New York Times. It was an embarrassment to the church. And the embarrassment, I think, was caused by the fact that here's Randy Bott actually saying what the church believes and has taught and hasn't dealt with. So he ended up uh, not being a professor anymore after that semester. <laughs> Let's say that. OK, I think he got called on a mission sure. somewhere. So no longer no longer professor. But that's 2012. And you would think that, OK, the church was embarrassed severely by that episode, maybe now would be a good time to do something about it. But no. So um, 2020, eight years later, this was in January. So just two years ago, the Come Follow Me manual, the new one on the Book of Mormon gets released. And guess what's in it? There's, uh, yep. There's a statement by Joseph Fielding Smith equating black skin with the curse. Right. Right? Right. And so, by the way, I went and looked this up. I'm not going to try and take too much time away from you, but this is when uh, Elder Gary Stevenson mm -hmm. was already slated to talk to the NAACP, and this thing hits the news, and so he has to come in there and basically, you know, eat crow. But he expressed regret. This is from the um, – what is this from? This is from a, a newspaper article about it. He expressed regret that the Come Follow Me manual for 2020 – contains an old statement that dark skin in the Book of Mormon was the sign of a curse. He disavowed that statement. We'll come back to disavow <laughs> later. <laughs> he says, this is what he said. We're asking our members to disregard the paragraph in the printed manual because it's in the printed manual. Sorry, it's going to stay in there. So just disregard it. Right. Um, this is the Deseret News. Now I'm deeply saddened and hurt 
by this error and for any pain that it may have caused our members and for others. I would just like to reiterate our position as a church is clear. We do condemn all racism past and present in any form and we disavow any theory advanced that black or dark skin is a sign of a curse. So he just uh, basically does the old trope. And then he said that the mistake was included in the printed version, which was prepared nearly two years ago. That was a long, long time ago, two years ago. And when church, it's not like these guys don't actually supervise. They don't have two apostles over every uh, committee in the church. When church leaders found out about the error in late 2019, they corrected it in the online version, which is used by the majority of members and adjusted future printed materials. So this is the kind of thing that keeps bubbling to the surface when it's not addressed, but we're not done. That was 2020. And then we cut fast forward to 2022 this year, just weeks ago, right? You've got Brad Wilcox in Alpine, Utah, talking to all the young people, uh, all, if not all, almost all of them, white young members of the church who are the future leaders of the church. And he's been giving this talk over and over and over again, making sure that this doctrine, these ideas are perpetuated among the youth and in future leaders of the church. And do you remember what it was that he said, Bill, I haven't heard from you in a while. Are you still there? I am still here. Um, Pop quiz time. Yeah, you're catching me here. So uh -huh. I know that there were lots of things that Brad said, but in terms of the, the race issue, it was the everybody's asking uh, why people of color couldn't have the priesthood until 1978 the question that they should be asking is why couldn't white people have the priesthood until 1830 you know or 29 but man you were good yeah. that's that's just about verbatim i've got to ask you um black expo okay <laughs> i go name i have my finger in the black expo that's what's going on in my mind you can see my wheels turning um yeah i i want to ask you were you aware of these different incidents as they happened? And if so, what were your feelings when they were happening and taking us up to Brad Wilcox? Oh, you mean the the different as, as far as the comments? Yeah, the, as, the, the racist eruptions in the church. Right. Yeah. So um, once I discovered this in the mission field, I, I you know, I, I went into research mode and, and I read pretty much you know, I read through the entire journal of discourses, just uh, documenting for my own, because I needed understanding. I needed to be clear. I needed to under, figure out why. Why is it that, again, this beloved church that I'm a part of and I've given my life to would see me this way? Um, so, yeah, I, historically, yes. Uh, uh, whatever has been published, I have read through it. The, the Mormon Doctrine by Bruce R. McConkie, um, just a Fielding Smith's uh, statements. Uh, what is it? The, the path to perfection? Is it the way to perfection? Uh, yeah, so I am. Um, so that, that, those are just the documented ones that are not necessarily mine. But, um, but I have, I, I think I shared this example with you being in the temple in college, uh, attending the temple for a friend's wedding. And one of the family members, and I know that in this, in retrospect, I think they meant well, but it didn't come out the way they thought. Uh, two instances. One was they walked up right up to me uh, as soon as the ceremony was over. 
So it is so nice to have a black man in our temple. Right. So what that to me, and, and perhaps, you know, others might listen to this and say, well, you're being just too picky and too sensitive. But there's always that demarcation, that exclusion, that you, you know, you don't really belong here. This is ours. This is our domain, our space. It's nice for you, for you to be welcome into our space. Um, and, uh, and another comment about just, you know, there was a time that people like you were not allowed in here. I heard that. I heard that several times. So to your question, uh, yeah. Yeah, personally, can, I've experienced that. And can I say just uh, in your defense, if I don't think you need any, but trying to empathize with your situation, this isn't a, a situation where it's a one-off. You know what I mean? Where there haven't, there's never been a priesthood ban. Blacks have always been welcome in the church on an equal footing with white people. And you're treated uh, equally with white people in the church. And then a couple people just say something maybe awkwardly worded, right? Right. This is something that you've lived with. It's been traumatizing to you. So things like this can trigger that trauma mm -hmm. again. Am I expressing that That's correctly? Right. That's right. That's right. In fact, um, for the longest time in the church, I, mm, it's interesting that we, we've, we've been wearing masks the last couple of years, but I think after my mission, I learned to wear a mask, not visible to other people, but in my presentation to others, especially in church environments, like I would have this guard on about me just because I know what I'm expecting whenever I walk into mostly church Mormon environments. Like I would have this mask on that just, you know, I, I guess the best way to explain it is, is like um, when you watch conference and you see the camera zoom into the one lonely single black face in the, in the, in the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. <laughs> I can't imagine the burden that that person has to carry to represent the church and to show diversity, even if it's just one black face. But that's been my experience is that I have to carry this burden of representing diversity in the church, even though I'm one single lone black face in most environments, most audience, most uh, church buildings that I walk into. Uh, yeah. You're muted. You're muted, RFM. I apologize. There we go. Um, yes, I'm going to want to pursue this and want you to talk about uh, Marvin Perkins, Gladys Knight, and Darius Gray. But this idea that as a black person in the church, at one and the same time, you're being treated in a number of ways as less than, less than by mm -hmm. your own church and the members. But simultaneously, you are expected to carry the burden of showing how diverse the church is and how open and welcoming they are when actually that's not even your experience. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I um, a number of years ago, uh, the church sent out uh, Marvin Perkins, Marvin Perkins with Gladys Knight to do apologetic tour, I think, in my opinion. Um, explaining that the black skin, even though in the, you know, it says I will cause a, a skin of blackness to come upon them so they will not be enticing unto my people. That is the scripture line, right? Like how much more black can you get when it says, it says that statement, right? Yeah, right. Right, right. And so they are 
and I, it was an amazing presentation. Uh, Gladys Knight was fantastic, fabulous. I mean, amazing voice. And But what kept recurring to me is like, why is it that these are the very people who've been traumatized in the church sent out to apologize for this doctrine? When it is, it should be, the apology should come at general conference, right? At the podium, right? Why is it that these people that have been inflicted with this issue are the very people who are come, having to come out. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, sorry. No, no, not at all. Was it somebody else who going to say something, Bill? Susie? Me? Okay, so let's go back to the B1 celebration, all right? In 2018, mm -hmm. Gladys Knight, I told you this, I think the first time we talked, Black mm -hmm. Exmo, was that uh, she just owned that entire auditorium when she sang at the end of it, she sang There's a Place for Us, right? A Place for Us right. from West Side Story. Right. Oh, my gosh. What a performer. And I've loved her ever since the early 70s and Midnight Train to Georgia, right? So I'm a huge Gladys Knight fan. As a good Mormon, I was so thrilled when she joined the church in the 1980s. I thought, yes, yeah. yes, this yeah. means that everything's okay now, I guess. Right. But it was, right. But it was huge, right? And yet, uh, through talking with you, I remember that at the beginning of that B1 celebration, there's a talk by President Oaks. Nobody's going to get to know what the heck he's going to say before he says it, because that's super secret squirrel GA stuff, right? right? You don't get to know what President Oaks is going to say before he opens his mouth and says it. Even if you did, it doesn't make it that much better. But now I'm trying to put myself in Gladys Knight's shoes, whom I adore. Now, she's, she's a, a big girl, right? She gets to make her own decisions in her life. So I'm not here criticizing her. But if I were her and I'm out there performing for a huge audience, I can't imagine what it would be like to be performing at a B1 celebration right after a, a president of my church has stood up there and claimed that this ban was from God. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I, um, this this sister that I follow that made a pleading. Please don't don't blame this on God because my God would not would not have implemented this doctrine. It broke my heart to watch her pleading. I mean, she just publicly she just started crying. It was, this was not Gladys Knight. I, I do empathize for Gladys Knight and Ma Marvin Perkins. I don't know where they are as far as their activity in the church now, if they're still involved. But I think that them coming out, their faith is probably stronger than mine. Uh, to continue to apologize for this issue, I think, is unfortunate. Um, right. And the apologies yeah. that they were doing was by saying that what the scriptures actually mean is different from what they say and different That's from right. what the church has been teaching since it's almost since 1852. How about that? Right. right. Yeah. Right. It's, it's to do this totally apologetic thing. Yeah. You say, no, a doesn't mean a, a means B and B is okay. Cause it's not as racist as a, so therefore what's the problem? Right. Right. No, they, like I said, uh, you know, when the book of Mormon actually comes out and says, black skin skin of blackness to come upon them so they will not be on and, and so they are they were uh marvin perkins and gladys and i were trying to reinterpret this to mean spiritual darkness instead of physical skin mm. darkness and i don't i don't know how you get those mixed up i mean i think for me um 
the, the dissonance between what I thought the church was and what I later found out it is, is was that gap was so wide. I don't, for them to try and bridge that gap for me is just insurmountable, I think, because you can't cross that bridge, I don't think. So uh, for the other psycho psychological health, I, I hope they've been able to reconcile it because I have not been able to do that. Right. And and I, go ahead, Susie. So I wanted to link this with your, I guess not permission, I'm just going to do it. Um, you know, I, in my space of leadership development, I deliver diversity, equity, inclusion training. And what I've heard from, um, and I use the word black because my black friends have said, you know, we're proud to be black. White people are the ones who made it dirty. So I use it with a capital B always. Right. Um, the responsibility that, you know, after the death of George Floyd, uh, was placed on black people to start teaching white people like about racism and how to be anti-racist. And what I've heard from my friends in that community is black people are tired of trying to teach you. They're they're already like we're asking the traumatized people to go in and then, you know, teach white people like about racism and what you know microaggressions are, et cetera. I see this linked in a way that we're we're picking on our black members, our traumatized members who also have generational trauma outside of Mormonism as a result of their skin color. And now we're bringing them into a church where they're definitely like, I mean, being the only one or one of the only ones creates trauma. Now we're using them to be the teachers. And I, I, I see that as, you know, my black friends have said, we're tired of teaching you. We're tired. Let us rest. You need to do the heavy lifting now. It's true. Yeah, and one thing, Susie, I was talking about with Black Exmo earlier was this idea that if you were to take a, say, a Black Baptist church in the South, mm -hmm. and they're in a community and a society where there's lots of white people, right? But, and so there's that, that issue, uh, certainly at times more than others, right? That issue of racism between them and surrounding people. But I asked Black Exmo, if you are a Baptist and you're black or maybe any other church that I'm aware of, I don't know all churches, but is there any church where as a black member, you are taught that God thinks that you're less than white people, not just the people around you, but that that's actually a teaching that God feels that you're less than the white people around you. And I think Black Exmo wasn't able to come up with any other religion where uh, black members are saddled with that. Susie, do you know of any? Bill? Westboro Baptists, but they're all white, right? You know, they're the ones that pick it. I mean, they certainly right. do. I think of Hitler and white supremacy, but I mean, not, not if you're talking about you know, within my realm of reach. No. It was remarkable when I thought of that, that actually God says that you're less than and not, yeah. I mean, that's, that's so huge. How on earth can you shoulder yeah. that for any yeah. prolonged period of time and still be a member of a church that claims to believe in a God who either says that or has said that in the past? Right. Black Exmo? No, you're absolutely right. As far as doctrinally, no, I mean, um, that issue of Cain has been used in Christianity for some time. Uh, but in terms of contemporary, modern uh, religious faiths basing, it, it, you know, it, 
so somebody did a research and I don't know, I need to look this up, but at some point it turns out that Sunday afternoon, Sunday morning slash afternoon is like the most divisive three hours in the country, meaning that everybody retrieves and, and recedes into their own enclaves, their own churches, right? Uh, that had to come from someplace, right? The, the, the basis for that doctrine had to come from someplace. But as far as, you know, using doctrinally revelation, blaming it on God, I don't know of any other faith that that has taught that, at least up through, like even during civil rights, when a lot of churches were opening their doors and welcoming people, I mean, we can go back to abolitionists. How come the abolitionists had an idea that this was not a true doctrine? And yet in the church, the church could not, did not. Uh, that was never revealed to the church that this is not a true doctrine. So, yeah, to your point, doctrinally, uh, uh, from a, a revelation from God, now God is being blamed. I don't know of any other faith that, that teaches that. Right. Well, we, we've got to wind up and open up for phone calls, but... Black Exmo, I wanted to give you the opportunity to take a few minutes, as much as you're comfortable doing, and talk about what happened a year ago when your shelf broke. <laughs> right. So um, as I've indicated earlier, uh, this has been the heaviest item on my shelf. And I apologize that I perhaps I wasn't super sensitive to all the other issues. It, it seems like in the church, if an issue is not my issue, it cannot, it cannot be an issue for anybody else. And I got caught up on that, but this has been my issue, and it's been on my on my shelf for a long time. Um, and just trying to figure out a way around this to, to reconcile this, and it just would not go away. As much as I've pressed it down, as you mentioned, for 30 years, it, it isn't going away. And I just I just had to decide, okay, I need to step up and deal with this, and and then let the chips fall where they may. So I was just listening to. A uh, number of uh, podcasts uh, on YouTube, and all of a sudden, <laughs> one of these podcasts uh, landed on, within my purview, and and I'm like, oh, okay. So I started li listening to uh, John Delin and then RFM and Bill Real, and I thought, you mean I'm not alone? Because this has been such a lonely journey in the church. Uh, terrified of walking away. Am I, did I, just being able to forgive myself for the mistake that I made coming, joining the church. And so that was one component, but stepping out of it and just abandoning it all was even scarier. Not knowing that, as you know, the church doesn't, there's no avenue that you can go and discuss this and talk to, uh, to anybody about it. So I've just been dealing uh, on this issue on my own. And to hear that other stories, uh, to hear Bill Real's story, to hear RFM's story, uh, Susie's story, and all the other stories that have been um, podcasted was such a, a burden lifted for me. Uh, I can't tell you how much that means to me to know that I am not alone in coming to terms with this mistake that I made. Yeah. Well put. Isn't well put. It, Thank you. I'll go ahead, Bill. Just isn't it? It's interesting to me, having done this now for a decade. It's interesting to me that we like something's wrong, and you can tell like something's rotting inside of you. You just don't know what it is. And when you listen to other people put it into their words, they're naming like somebody out there has mm -hmm. the 
a light bulb moment where they're naming the thing you're feeling. And there's a thousand things you're feeling and you're like, Oh, that's it. That's mm -hmm. what it's doing to me. I just, I just listened to the emancipate your mind podcast and it was before we added them to the umbrella and it was the consent and coercion episode and brilliant, by the way, everybody should check it out. Emancipate your mind. Um, she's naming all these ways in which Mormonism coerced me and took away my consent. I'm like, oh, I didn't even think of that one. Oh, I didn't even think of that one. Oh, I didn't even know they were doing that. Like, it's listening to people explain, like, here's what doesn't feel right. And as you're pointing out, Black Exmo, you suddenly go like, oh, I'm not alone. That person, that person's feeling the thing I'm feeling too. Mormonism teaches you to, at least for me, I won't say for everyone, it taught me to abandon my intuition you have and to. so we yeah. we leave and all of a sudden that thing in our belly that didn't feel right when certain topics came up you realize that that was there all along and i ignored it and i put it on a shelf and then and then you know it's it's interesting because black exmo you said this mistake that i made and what i hear in that is maybe i don't know i'm guessing maybe getting into the anger stage Right. Yes. Yep. Because I hope, you know, at some point, I really believe every challenge is an opportunity and gift. And for those who aren't quite there yet, like, I think I'm there four years out. It's like, okay, sometimes the anger shows up. And most of the time, it's like, this is a challenge that I faced. And now it's an opportunity. Yeah. So as a result, and I, and I know, like, Black Exmo, we can't go into it, obviously, but you talked about loss of having the ability to find a partner and, yeah. you know, there's going to be anger and things like that there. And so, right. you know, it gets better, though. Thank you. Thank you. I'm looking forward to the rest of it, to the rest of yeah. life. Yes. Yeah. Well, good, because yeah. let me tell you, it only gets better from here. <laughs> good, good, good. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. love it. <laughs> oh, and by the way, I, I would just like to tell you, I could tell you this later, but I want to make sure I tell you this now. Uh, for both of you, I'm speaking specifically to Black Exmo. When you are done here, mm -hmm. you can go back and rewatch this on YouTube and click the live chat feature so you can see the comments that are being made because a representative sampler being thrown up on the screen by Maven, mm -hmm. and there is so much support for you and so many um, uh, people saying that we are here for you, that you're not alone and that you're always welcome here. And I think that what I've experienced and what I hope you'll experience is that this community, at least here on this show and in post-Mormonism generally, tends to be much more welcoming. It tends to be welcoming like we had hoped and wished the church would be, but wasn't. Thank you. Thank, thanks, everybody. Thank you so much. Um, you, you can't really see me, but uh, <laughs> it's verklempt. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> Black Exmo speaks Yiddish. Yes, <laughs> yes. I only know that from Saturday Night Live. Thank you. Can I add this? I have to add this. He's just as handsome in person <laughs> as he is by his avatar. Thank you. Thank you, and, Susie. And that's saying something. Much love I, to you. Thank I you. agree, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> Are we open for, what is it, um, phone calls? Yes. Yeah. It's the Victory for Satan segment of the show, and you can dial 662 Mormons with an S on the end, and that translates to 
6667. And we do have Emily on the phone. Emily, you're on Mormonism Live with our guest today. Uh, what's on your mind? Hey, guys. I just first of all want to say thank you so much for taking my call because I have been wanting to call in live and I've never had the opportunity to because I live in South Carolina. So the distance sometimes is hard, but I just really wanted to let you guys know that I really appreciate this episode. I find it so beautiful. And Black Exmo, I just have to tell you, you are like the coolest guy ever. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to talk briefly, just super quick, that, um, you know, I live in South Carolina. And, you know, I don't know if 60% of my state are African American, but there's not one Black person in my ward here. And I find that just tragic. Um, so I don't know if you guys want to talk about that at all, but, um, just super quick before I hang up, I just have to tell Black Expo as well that you are not alone. Absolutely not. Um, you know, like you had this curse be your shelf breaker, but as a woman, polygamy was mine. So we all have our own things based on who we are and what we've been taught growing up. So you're definitely not alone, and we love you guys. And that's all I'm going to say. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Emily. All right. We've got um, – don't have a name here, but – did you guys want to address that, by the way, before we go to the caller? Any responses? Sure, yeah. I'm Just the idea that there aren't any people of color or black people in these congregations in southern wards. Right. Basically, uh, as a – a person of color as a black person in most environment. In fact, I was encouraged to move to Hyde Park Ward in London where there would be <laughs> a sizable black population to find a met. I mean, you have to go so far just to find people that reflect you in an audience in the church. And this is all stems back to that black curse doctrine. That is the problem. Yeah, for some reason, Blacks don't seem to find the LDS Church appealing. I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> they found out. Yes. Lack of representation. I mean, I, I think, you know, if you go to a congregation and you look around and no one looks like you, like, why would you want to be there? Yeah, Maybe right. that's why. All right. I think we've got Mary on the line. Mary, you're on Mormonism Live. What's your comment for the, our guest tonight? Hi, folks. Um, I've, uh, we've spoken a couple times before. It's good to see you all. Um, greetings to Black Exmo. Um, Black Exmo, I don't want you to think that any of these comments um, bear on you at all. Um, I'm just frustrated and spitting mad about how little attention is paid to the fact that women are not allowed the priesthood. Uh, 53% of Mormons are women. Fifty percent of the population is women. And yet you all keep ignoring this issue and I don't understand why. Awesome. We'll respond to that. Thank, Thank you. you for the question, Mary. I appreciate you. I I don't know how to respond to it other than to say that I think on all kinds of levels over the course of episodes that I've done or episodes you've done that we have spoken about that issue. I, I think they're two very different issues that have the same kinds of emotional trauma tied to them, right? You're feeling the same kind of thing. 
Um, but they're very different situations. And I think we've addressed both of those over the course of time. Uh, the church certainly hasn't addressed it. Anything I think it's, you, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Mary, I'm so with you as a woman, like, especially coming out of the church, like I, I never had a career that, um, you know, really paid me much money. I didn't have to take care of myself until after my divorce. I feel pretty slighted by some of those things. I think the, that we, I, I, I think we need to do better to talk about women's issues and giving space for this one thing. The one thing I will say is like, um, we've, we've been discriminated against as women. However, the one thing that we have that's different is we have never been discriminated against if you're white because of the color of your skin. So it's very different and it brings up, like Bill said, some of the same emotions. So I want to empathize and, and show you that I care about that and say that it doesn't have to be an either or maybe it's an and room for this. And what I hear you saying is you'd love to hear more. And I think these gentlemen like that feedback. And it's time for some damn change and the world is changing, but man, it's too slow for all of us. Um, yeah. The yeah. system is set up to move slowly, whether it's Mormonism mm. or whether it's societies at large, they, it, it just takes a long time and it's not fast enough for us, but it is what it is. Yes. In the LDS church, it is true that progress is achieved one death at a time. Yeah. Mm. And even then not that fast. Yeah. I mean, you bring another issue too, right? There's it, black Exmo express suicidal ideology the LGBT mm -hmm. community, the stress mm -hmm. and, and weight that women feel on their shoulders. There's a lot of people who don't fit in the box that Mormonism is not doing right by. Can I say one other thing about Mary's comment? Mm -hmm. um, I think I address this. I say so much. It's hard for me to remember everything I say. And in some ways, that's a blessing. But Brad Wilcox made a number of comments. Some were offensive to uh black people some were offensive to women and you know the things he said about women were just as if not more so offensive than the things he said about black people and being very cavalier about the priesthood ban and dismissive of it and concerns regarding it but when push came to shove and everything blew up in brad wilcox's face the apology he gave, by the way, kudos to him for giving an apology. Hopefully he's setting a good example for Elder Oaks. But the apology he gave had nothing to do with his comments about women. It was specifically about what he had said about blacks and the priesthood ban. So I do agree that there is a lot of focus on this. And it's almost as if we have become so accustomed to being dismissive of women and the priesthood ban on women, which has been there from the beginning and continues today, that it almost doesn't even require comment or apology anymore. It's sort of taken for granted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you guys want to go to the next call, I've got Marco on. You guys want to do that? Sure. Okay. Marco, you are on the air with Mormonism Live, and I actually think this will be the last call. Go ahead with uh, your point tonight about uh, the show. Yeah. Hey, how, how's everyone doing this fine evening? Marco. Polo. <laughs> Polo. Yay. Marco. Hey, so have Ryan, you or have Ryan, you not had anything to drink I, I, I while you're watching the show? 
<laughs> no, I have not had anything to drink. I don't require a drink to sound like I'm drunk. So okay, that's, good, that's good. the interesting part about me. So. Okay. <laughs> so, um, yeah, um, actually, I should give credit, first of all, to Ryan. I'm here chilling with him in North Ogden. And he brought up about the Black Menaces on TikTok. And I actually want to ask Black Exmo um, if he is familiar with that. And if he is, like, what, what he thinks about what they're doing. Um, yes, I am. Thank you, Marco. Um, I am familiar with mm-hmm. them. I'm not, I, I'm not connected with them in any way. I, just from a distance. I mean, I can understand. Um, I do empathize. And I feel... Black Exmo? Sure. Sorry to interrupt, but for those of our audience who don't know what the Black Menaces are, could you tell us what they are and then give us your thoughts? <laughs> right. Maybe Marco might be able to explain more. Uh, I just peripherally just know that they are, um, I think it's a subgroup of the Black or African-American Student Union out of BYU. Uh, they have a channel, a TikTok channel, and they go um, they go out and they interview um, students about just comments that have been made by church, by prophets, seers, and revelators over the years. They would say, who made this statement? Was it a prophet or was it Hitler, right? <laughs> and, <laughs> and a lot of those statements, um, and, and it just goes to show how much the students at BYU do not know about this issue. Um, I think uh, uh, maybe two weeks ago, the uh, BYU policy came out that they uh, they will need to get permission now to start in, to in, if they want to continue to interview students on campus uh, going forward. Mm-hmm. Who does that, right? Who does? They they were interviewing this week. I saw them, so they must not be listening. But uh, I think that they draw out racism, yeah, without even knowing it. It's like. I, w- I will say that I've been surprised at how many of these young BYU students are quote unquote woke, um, mm. but occasionally it weeds out someone who, um, and bless, I'll say bless their hearts, they don't even know they sound racist. Yeah, yeah. it's educational. I mean, grownups can can watch it and just um, imbibe the knowledge that is coming off of that. It, it, I, think, I think it needed to happen just because I can't imagine those students under the circumstances having to deal with this issue when they should be focusing on the education. There we are. I, uh, I'm going to put it up on the screen specifically because I guess Dan Vogel's asking it. I'm a little nervous of the question. I don't, if you don't want to answer like we can just move on. <laughs> do you, do you have any thoughts uh, on Kwaku? Um, a long time ago before I became, uh, before RFM and I met, I think I made a comment. Uh, I think Kweku is angling to start his own church. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, that's all I have to say. I, yeah, it no just, sweat. yeah. No sweat. All right, that's it for our calls. Um, well, I want to take this yeah. opportunity to thank Black Exmo and Susie Benson for coming on the show tonight. Thank you so much. I know we went a little bit long, and especially for those on the East Coast, and God forbid if you live in Scootland, it's very, very late. We have actually listeners um, around the freaking world. So everybody, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And please don't forget that it is um, African Promise. No, it's the African Promise Foundation, correct? 
Dot org. AfricanPromiseFoundation.org. And please go make a contribution. I'll be doing that after the show. And uh, let's help Susie with the great work that she's engaged in. Yeah, and the you were showing saying, Susie, the, the cost is so low. I think I saw on the website as you guys were talking, I was looking at it. 35 bucks to support a kid for a month, 400 and something bucks for a year. Just yeah, I, I think I raised it. It just verbally, I raised it. It's a little closer to 50 now because we've yeah. two years since. But the still, I mean, at that point, 600 every, bucks for a year. Yeah. yeah, I call it the Starbucks effect. If you can afford to get a $5 coffee, how many days a week? Can you get rid of one of those, you know, maybe five times a month? Yeah, you know, and, if, and, and people, I just want to say a little further because I think it'll help the cause, which is. Um, people have in their minds that once they get burned by the church, they, they're really mm-hmm. nervous about passing money on to anything. Mm-hmm. But for those who, you know, you've left, you've got 10% of your money back, sending 600 bucks a year to a, a cause like this and helping a real person over the course of mm-hmm. an entire year. Um, man, it's, it's not anywhere near the 10% and it's mm-hmm. doing real good work. And Thank Susie, you. forgive me for asking a lawyer question, but is this tax deductible? Yes. Yep, it's a 501c3. All right, thank you. Well, thanks again, everybody. It's been great. I've enjoyed it immensely. And I want to wish everybody a very happy Wednesday evening. Thank you. Thank you, RFM. Thank you, Bill Real. Thank you, Susie. Okay, love you guys. Thanks. Thanks so much. We'll talk soon. Bye. Bye -bye. This idea that the church is hiding something, which we would have to say as two apostles who have covered the world and know the history of the church and know the the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve from the beginning of time, there has been no attempt on the part in any way of the church leaders trying to hide anything from anybody.